we are so often in our heads about the process of writing. And then we get all judgy and we think, well, who do you think you are? Like, really? You think you're a writer? You think you're going to be an author? That's rich. We do all of these things to taunt ourselves. And they're like, no, go be creative. I just beat myself up for a half hour and now I'm going to go and be brilliant and creative. Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. Each week, we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve and exceed your writing and publishing goals. This week, we're talking to Liz Sola about writing confidence. Liz Sola is a Boston-based voice actor and host of the Embark podcast. She believes we could all use a little more conversation. Her mission is to share stories that are both personal and universal to promote understanding, empathy, and kindness. Liz coaches reluctant speakers to communicate with more confidence, power, and grace. Her signature talks include no is not a four-letter word. She founded and contributes to the writer's blog Acts of Revision and just completed her first novel. She lives in Greater Boston with her husband and Golden Doodle studio manager, Jesse. I sat down to talk to her about how we can build our writing confidence and feel more confident talking about those slightly trickier subjects. Shout out to all our patrons who helped keep the podcast going and show their support over on Patreon. If you'd like to join them to get early access to episodes, bonus content, writing sprints, and their undying gratitude for supporting the show, you can become a patron for as little as one pound a month. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. As you may have noticed, there's a little someone missing this week. Ellie is not with me today as she is at a wedding while I record this. So it is just me and the, the temptation to play all by myself is strong, but I will resist the urge to do that or imitate Bridget Jones in any other way. I don't really have an update beyond Ellie's not here and writing all the things and trying to stay sane. So let's just get on with the show. With me today is Liz Sola. Welcome to The Writer's Mindset. Ah, oh, Christina, thank you for having me today. So tell our listeners a little bit about you then. Okay, well, um, you know, there's this old joke, it all started in a 5,000 watt radio station, but it kind of did. So after school, I did an internship at a radio station and I loved it so much. I got into, uh, you know, writing news and then being on the air, doing the news. I was a public affairs director. I did some DJ work, uh, worked in promotion. So it was all things broadcasting and a lot of interviewing. So um, after, after my last full-time job um, in radio, I had small children and I was trying to figure out what the next step was. And I decided, and this is you know, a good 15 years ago now, that I would have a studio in my house, which has become ubiquitous among voice actors. So I had a studio, little studio built in my house, and I've been working from home remotely you know, since 2005, 2006, um, you know, about me, I was a very shy child and did not speak in public until I was about 11 years old. So there's some kind of a symmetry or some kind of a, you know, vocal journey going on there. You know, I'm a mom. Uh, now I'm a grandmother. Life is good. 
life is good. I have little critters in my backyard and that makes me happy. And in your bio, don't you refer to your dog as your stage manager or studio manager or something she as well? She is the studio manager. She is in charge. <laughs> She's large and in charge. She's this big, fluffy, white, golden doodle who struts like a model. <laughs> like she does need her own runway. So in addition to the voice work, I do write quite a bit and I am revising my first novel, which is akin to giving childbirth, although I think it's maybe slightly more painful, <laughs> and uh, and curate a blog for writers. So that kind of okay. takes up all my time. And then I yeah. work with people who have problems speaking in public because I think most people do. They'd rather, I think it's like 75% of people or 70 would rather be inside the casket than the person who is celebrating the life of the person in the casket. So, Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It that's is a much, bit. Yeah. Right. So we have a hard time, I think, expressing what we have to say. Yeah. Why do you think some people struggle with public speaking so much? Well, I think in general, we have a lot of self-judgment. So it's that self-judgment that I think really gets under our skin. We're not sure how it's going to be received. And we think about how people are going to be receiving us, which is really not a very generous thing to do because it's really about the person you're talking to and not about you. But the other piece is, you know, what other people think about you is none of your business. We can't always go out with confidence. That's, you know, I think all things mimic life. So we're going to have those days when we don't really feel it. And sometimes we really have to dig that much deeper you know, in terms of discussing things that are hard to discuss, there's, you know, there's so many reasons for that. We come in to our communication with so many emotions, you know, how we feel about things, what our experience is and how that colors, how we might act or react in a situation. And then we have to go into something. It's, it's hard when you agree with people sometimes to have a difficult conversation, but when you disagree, there's already a division so that division makes it even more difficult to be able to have, I think, a productive conversation. I'll put it that way. There are a lot of unproductive conversations going on out there, and I think we've all heard a bunch of them, and they seem to be the loudest voices in the room. So how do you, you know, come into it with a little bit more balance, with a little bit more, you know, I would say kindness? That's, that's harder. Oh, yeah. Do you think that difficulty in discussing those harder subjects translates into writing as well? Or can it sometimes be easier to write about it than talk about it? Or maybe some people find it easier to talk about than write about? I think that there are some parallels in every type of communication. One of the luxuries of writing as a rule is that you have a chance to look back on what you write, reflect upon it, to edit it, to you know, really go through it and say, is this really what I want to say? So we, you know, that self-editor comes in handy sometimes. Often, and I think electronic conversations, uh, digital conversations that are dashed off, you know, on your keyboard, I think there's dicier sometimes because there's like this trigger happy I want to say trigger happy because it is like a drive-by shooting. You could, you know, you could say something really incendiary to somebody and you, you didn't really think about it. It was an impulse. So it's always trying to reset, take a moment to breathe before you respond to something or you put something down on paper because that stuff lasts. 
you know, that's going to hang around for a long time. Is that how you want to be represented? Those are some of the traps of of writing. But I, I do think that being able to write, we can put a lot more thought. We can put, I think we say things on paper when we are really thoughtful that we can't say uh, when we're just speaking to somebody. I think sometimes it's a little bit more lyrical or poetic or generous. And sometimes it's the most genuine we can be. I think we try to find our best selves when we're writing. At least I hope we do. Yeah, I think a lot of people definitely do that. Should we change how we communicate based on our audience? Or should we stick to this is how I speak? This is how I am. If you don't like it, lump it. Well, you know, think of all the people in your life that you speak to. If you're a parent, you're speaking to your child. You're not going to speak to your child in the same way that you speak to your boss or speak to the board of directors or, you know, speak to an audience of your peers. We speak differently because we necessarily tailor the tone that we take, the way that we give that information. If we are true to ourselves, I think that information is always the same. I think we're always delivering the same message and figuring out what's the most suitable way to do that. I mean, if it's your best friend and they're dating somebody who you think is wildly inappropriate, you're going to have a little bit more urgency about the way you couch that message as opposed to, you know, somebody giving you change at the, at the store. So we, you know, we have this emotional gamut and we go to those things, but we always, you know, if, if there's somebody that your friend's dating and you don't like them, you're not going to like them across the board. You know, that's never going to be a happy conversation, but I think that there are going to be different levels of urgency or diplomacy depending on that person too. How are they going to receive that? Do you know them well enough? And can you empathize enough with them not to, you know, we can say someone's wildly inappropriate and believe me, people have said that to me about, you know, former boyfriends. And it's the way that people give you that information that make it easier to accept. It's the same truth. Have you got but any tips for addressing those topics in a more diplomatic way, particularly for people who do you tend to blurt things out without thinking maybe? When you think about yoga, it's that breath in and that breath out. I don't know whether your mom ever did this, but it's like, I'm going to give you to the count of 10 and then there's going to be a consequence, whatever that consequence that parents follow through upon. But it's really a, a matter of resetting. Take that breath first, because it gives you a chance to think about what you're saying. And if, even if you want a mantra, and to me, one of the most effective is, you know, um, a lot of love in and a lot of love out, because it gives you a chance to figure out in the, at the same time, why am I saying this? What's your purpose for saying this? If it's just to point out something that is negative about somebody, if it's to make a point, if it's to stroke your own ego, I think all of, all of that is going to backfire and you could end up alienating somebody. Think about your purpose for saying it to begin with. Is it going to help? Is it constructive? And many times we, we shoot first and ask questions later. And it's really important to think about like, how is this going to be received? If I were talking to myself, and sometimes we do give ourselves a lot of abusive messages. So it might be a good exercise just in terms of how we speak to ourselves, but don't speak to your friend like that. Or if they make a faux pas about the way they're talking about a social or political situation, sometimes they don't know. They don't know that, you know, we don't know what we don't know. 
And how you say that to somebody really makes a difference in the whether you get advocates, you know, that sense of, are they going to be an advocate or an ally, or am I just now alienating one other person? So, you know, really think about your motives for putting that out to begin with. Yeah, I like that. It's one of those things you feel like you should know it, but until it's spelled out to you, you're probably more likely to just blurt things out without thinking, particularly, I think, when it's like Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp, you just write what's in your head. I I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm going to be a jerk today. We don't. We want to. We want to be good, I think. And most of us are good, but we say things often based on our own self-perception, the perceptions of the world, our own experience. So we bring all of that in. And it's, it's not always a worldview that everybody else shares. So it's first accepting, oh, not everybody does think like me because not everybody is me. So giving other people a break about that is, uh, I think, a really helpful thing to do. We cannot keep thinking about people who think differently as adversaries. It's how can we be a collaborator and how can we be an ally? And that gets that gets lost. And whether it's that uncomfortable situation that a boss has to have with an employee, you know, husband to wife, um, you know, teacher to students, there has to be a better way to couch our conversations. But sometimes those conversations are necessary, even if they are wildly uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. And that is, that's the trick, how to have that conversation. And mostly like everything else, you're a writer. How did you get to be a better writer? You practiced. You know, we get better at things when we practice. So one of the things, and I have worked with cohorts of people in corporations about giving their talk. And because you know something and you already have that information, we feel that we can get up and give a compelling conversation or make a compelling point, but we're not prepared. We haven't practiced. So, so much of our communication, those difficult conversations, you got to ramp up to it. You know, if no is something that we have a hard time saying, and most of us overcommit, you know, how do you say no to people? Well, maybe, you know, start at the store where they everybody's trying to sell you a credit card, right? If you buy today and use your credit card, you get 15% off. And I don't think anybody needs another credit card. Sorry, credit card companies. Nobody does. But what we can do is say, hey, no, th- but thank you for offering. You know, I, I really appreciate that. Not today. I don't, I don't do any more credit cards. I have enough start with low risk situations and you find yourself being able to have those more difficult ones because you found a a civil way to respond. And I think it's finding the civil way to respond. And and that's very helpful. Most of us, you know, get pent up at first, you know, somebody knocks our coffee or whatever, and we say, oh, that's okay. And those little, you know, it's like death by a thousand cuts, small slights happen. And we're like, oh, that's okay. That's okay. Do it again. And then we're like a ball of stress and we're uncomfortable for anybody to be around, but then we're going to blow. There's going to be something, there's going to be a hangnail and we're going to be wildly inappropriate in that response because we haven't aired out some of our emotions. We don't have to show all of them, but learn how to express your emotions somewhat healthfully. I have twin granddaughters now. They're almost three. And one is very clear in her communication. And 
someone will push her and she'll say, I don't like that. Not, I don't like you. I don't like that. Or she doesn't say you hurt me. She fully owns her emotions. And I think sometimes if we're, we understand the agency that we have over ourselves and our emotion and our communication, it makes it much easier to express that and be curious. You know, if someone says something hurtful to us, sometimes our response is, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go after you now. And again, it's that breath and, oh, that's interesting. Why do you say that? Or, huh, I hadn't seen that written about, you know, for people who are into disinformation, where did you, where did you see that? Because I didn't see that. And now you're opening up a conversation. And if, if someone else decides they're going to clam up or walk out of the room or say something nasty, that's on them. But you have done what you can to nurture a relationship. I think it can be really hard sometimes when you're having those difficult conversations and someone reacts in a negative way. Like you think it is on you and it feels personal. But one of my favorite quotes is that you are responsible for how you respond. You're not responsible for how other people respond to you. And it's so easy to forget that, but such an important thing to remember. You're exactly right. And and I think, Christina, because we are both writers, how many times have you been in a group of writers, you know, your peers, and you're reading something and there will be, you know, accolades that's great. And there'll be one or two people who say, I don't get that. Oh, yeah. I, I don't like that. I don't like that character. And I always go back to art communication. It's a collaboration because it's the person who is giving and the person who's receiving. And if somebody doesn't get your thing, maybe you need to explain it better. But the other piece is, they may have a limited experience or it just might not be their thing. So they don't like it. It's like, okay, you know, I'm offering it to you. You can accept it or not. And the more difficult thing is making peace with that because we want everybody to like us. Oh yeah. But there's always going to be some people who just don't get what you're trying to do or they come at it from such a different place. They are literally never going to understand even if you explain until you run out of breath. I will give you an example. Real life, I was in my writer's group and we've been together for several years now and there was something unfinished. And I take walks, I do a little meditation. And one day I thought, oh, this is what it is. This is what's been missing. And it has to do with a true historic figure. I'm writing a book where Georgia O'Keeffe is a central figure. She's not always mentioned, but her her persona is in the background. And I thought the thing that motivates this protagonist is a secret about Georgia O'Keeffe that we can say is probably not true because we never heard about it. It's something that's plausible. And someone in my group said, I don't think you can do that. Aren't you afraid that you're going to get in trouble? Isn't that against some rule? I thought, well, the rule is fiction. And we can go wherever we want. And I think she was being protective. She thought, oh, well, Liz is going to get sued if she writes something like that. But it's, you know, we put disclaimers. This is a work of fiction. This, this is not true. It's, this is a figment of my imagination. And I think we've really shut that down in terms of even when we question things. Well, what about this? We can get really shut down for asking a legitimate question because people feel like it's an inappropriate question or they're afraid of it in some way. It, it threatens them. And, you know, I guess we just have to live with that. 
What would be your tips then for someone who wants to discuss or write about something that is seen as quite a difficult or challenging topic, but they don't feel like either they have the skill or maybe they don't have the confidence to address it? Again, it comes down to, you know, really, if, if you want to write, just start writing something. And sometimes you have to go to that very ugly place. Like, what's the worst thing that I can say? And write it down. And usually people won't go that far, especially like I think of memoir and have written with people who write memoir. And it's always this balance of how wonderful do I want myself and the people in my life to look as opposed to, you know, what's the reality as I experienced it, as I saw it. But I think it's, again, it's preparation and practice. Like, put all of that stuff down. You know, why are you saying it? You know, ask, challenge yourself. You know, have some curiosity about why do you want to write it? What will it mean if you write this down? What will it mean if you share this? And and again, I, I don't think there's any easy way to get around it. I think you just have to go through it. It's, I think, like every other experience that we have as human beings. One thing I found helpful for me, and I know it's helped some of my coaching clients as well, is to just do some expressive writing about how they're feeling. Like if they're angry at someone or they're having a bad day, just word vomit onto the page and then destroy it when you're done. Like it's not about writing to share it. It's about writing to get out of your system because the more you bottle stuff up, the worse you feel physically and mentally. And also then I think it can affect your writing. I have found generally that the people whose writing lacks emotion tend to be the people who are less emotionally aware. So they are not expressing those emotions that they feel in either writing or speaking. And therefore they can't express what their characters feel in writing because they don't fully understand the scope of these emotions themselves. Right. And and we don't know a lot. Like I've only experienced my experience and no matter what type of writing that you go to, whether it's nonfiction or memoir or fiction, we are going to write about people that we have really not a lot of knowledge about. We know them, we've seen them, but we don't really know what makes them tick. And being able to step into imagination, well, why, why do I think that could happen? And we, we often you know, draw people that we don't like, or we're trying to make a point about, you know, a contrast between somebody who's wonderful and somebody who's not so wonderful, you know, they're doing everything but twirling their mustache and cackling. And it's so important, whether you're writing or whether it's the real person, like thinking they have a vulnerability, they have something in them. Um, It's really easy. And we do it so much in the public conversation. They're angry. They're stupid. You know, they're ridiculous. And it's okay. Let's, let's take a look at that. Why, why do you think they might be angry? Why are they frustrated? You know, keep asking why, you know, why am I writing about this? You know, why do they react that way? So why, why are they responding to this? And I think asking why is, it's a very easy thing to do if you're sitting with a pad of paper and a pen and I highly recommend using that pad of paper and a pen. There's something really visceral about putting pen to paper, having that marriage between your hand and your brain, and so much richness coming out that I don't think you have the same experience with a keyboard and a screen. It, there's a lot of intimacy with that. 
Oh, definitely. I admit I pretty much do all of my writing on computer. And the reason is twofold. Well, actually, it's three reasons. One, it hurts me too much to write. Two, my brain works faster than I can write. And three, my handwriting is illegible when I go back through it. I had that issue and it was like 12 years of parochial school. You would think that, you know, I would have great penmanship, but no, no. And, and that is, it's like, does that say donuts? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, I trained myself to be able to free write on a computer, but for certain things, like when I'm planning a book out, I still prefer to do it on pen and paper because it does help me to think it through if it's something more challenging. Do you ever use the recorder on your phone? Do you ever record the idea? Sometimes I'm in my car and I can't actually physically write. So I get my phone and I just start putting down, I've, I've written like full essays just by talking them out. I haven't recently. I did used to do it, um, but I'm lucky that my boyfriend does most of the driving. <laughs> so I always yeah. can get to my phone or like, you know, I'm either here or out with the dog or my parents or something. So I can always get to my phone to type it out. And a lot of AI systems that transcribe things just do not like the way I speak. So it can be a challenge trying to make sense of it if it's transcribed it as well. <laughs> well, they'll, they will look at that and they'll say, did she? say donuts. I yeah. mean, I, I will see certain things or certain phrases are repeated a couple of times. It's like, I, I wasn't really trying to emphasize that. I don't know why it's down twice. So <laughs> yeah. Going back to confidence issues then, why do so many writers suffer from things like imposter syndrome? Oh my. Well, you're in your own little cubicle. I'm in my own little cubicle. You know, we have these little places that we, you know, sort of squirrel away in our, in our homes. And this is a solitary experience. I mean, in many ways it has to be. So we're doing this thing in isolation and we're, you know, sometimes self-editing, we're editing as we're writing. Is this going to be good? We are so often in our heads about the process of writing. And then we get all judgy and we think, well, who do you think you are? Like, really? You think you're a writer? You think you're going to be an author? That's rich. So we do all of these things to taunt ourselves. And they're like, no, go be creative. I just beat myself up for a half hour. And now I'm going to go and be brilliant and creative. It's such an obstacle to creativity. So I, I think that we are in our heads. And I think it was Anne Lamott who said, you know, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. During the day, I think we need these ways to get away from our own selves. So we can go back, like keep replenishing the well call a friend, go out for a walk, you know, look at nature, um, listen to some music, break up your day, live life. We think, oh, I'm going to stay in all day and I'm going to write or, you know, going to audition for, you know, a commercial or whatever that pursuit is. And we're locked in our cage all day when we could be doing so many other things, you know, do, do something with your hands. I always feel like, you know, bake or, you know, knit or, paint, you know, do something, you know, take a run, do something that gets you out of your head and connects your brain more to your body. Because we really want to write from here, you know, from the heart and the gut. And often it's, it's coming from here and it's, it's not resonating because it's, it's all about wanting it to be perfect and reasoned. And we don't read things because we go, you know what, that they made some really good intellectual points, you know, unless you're reading a, a text, I guess, but Nobody wants to come away from a book saying they really crafted that well. You know, we want the craft to be, you know, like a ninja. You know, we want to be like a ninja in our craft. 
We just want what's left behind to feel real and connected to people. So I think the more we ourselves connect to what's outside of these little cubicles, the more enriched our our writing becomes. And I think the less we obsess about it because now we feel filled up. One thing I found really useful is writing first thing in the morning. I absolutely detest mornings, but because I'm literally getting out of bed and coming straight in here to write, there's less of that filter and my brain is still waking up. So I don't have the energy to judge anything or to overthink anything. I go to my outline and go, okay, what chapter am I working on today? And I pick out the chapter and then I just start writing and keep going until either I've hit a thousand words or that chapter's done. I've found that really beneficial because like I say, I just don't have the headspace to sit there and overanalyze things or worry about things because I haven't checked my emails yet or anything. So I have no idea what's going on in the world. And that allows me a much greater opportunity to focus. Well, you're back into the world where you were writing and, and there are all those tricks. What is it? You know, uh, was it a Hemingway thing? You know, write drunk, edit sober. Yeah. I don't think you should be drinking and writing. I'm <laughs> be falling asleep in the middle of it. But but have that mind that is a little fuzzy. I, I often write either first thing in the morning, as you do, or very late at night, because there's something kind of fuzzy about that, and I'm able to enter that world and not be judgmental. And we're trying to you know, like, hey, I've got an hour. I'm going to stay up and do this. So you're not editing because you just want to get it down. We know when we're under a deadline, right? You're right. Your writing's probably amazing. People go, really? You did that in 10 minutes? It may need editing. It may need some finessing. But we do great work sometimes under, under pressure. And that is not the best way to write a book or do anything. But, but those little bursts of urgency, I think, can only help the writing. Oh yeah. I, I don't work well under pressure, but I work well to deadlines. So I try and space things out and kind of work backwards and go, okay, if this is the deadline, what do I need to, what are the steps I need to take? And then I kind of work out how long each of those steps um, is going to take. And that yes. really helps me to process the whole thing and not feel completely overwhelmed by all the stuff that I've got to do. Yes. Writers don't understand that what they do is also a business. And I think that is true across the board for creatives. Oh, I just want to do this. I, I, I don't want to have to deal with sort of the businessy part or organizational part. And I am terrible at organization, but I found that's the thing that gets me to the finish line is being able to not so much organize my thoughts, organize everything else around me. I think it was, was it Flaubert who said, you know, be, you know, sober and organized in your life so you can be wild in your art. All of those things that we do outside of the writing feed feed the actual writing because you know there's this romanticized notion of you know you have to be really falling apart to write something good and there are days and that that happens but I don't I don't think that is the the way to go if you're trying to write something meaningful and deep something with some heart I think you have to be totally present as a person and yeah. get rid of those distractions. Yeah. I mean, if you're falling apart, then it's a lot harder to concentrate and get any words on the page because you're just so overwhelmed. It's hard to concentrate on anything that actually means something to you. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love your uh, example of, I, I need to write a thousand words a day. Like we often say, I'm going to write 18 pages today. And generally we have like, you know, um, 
all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. You know, we end up with like not a whole lot at the end and it's setting the expectations. During the summer, I was having a hard time attending to things. And I thought, I just need to write 500 words a day. And having those really small goals, you rarely are able to contain it to 500 words a day. So you're probably going to produce more. And that is the thing that sparks confidence. Oh, I exceeded my expectation. Yeah. And if you start small, I think it's easier as well. Like I wouldn't recommend most people aim for a thousand words a day, but I knew when I set myself that goal that it would always be attainable. And generally speaking, I do about 1500 to 2000 words. And then I'm like, okay, I should probably stop and exercise and have breakfast now because my stomach's rumbling and my body wants to move because I've been sat at a desk for however long, usually about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on what I'm doing. And yeah, I definitely find that those writing sprints are when I am probably the most productive. Like if I sat down to work on my book halfway through the day, I don't think I would get as much done. And I don't think I would be as tapped into the emotions of the scene either. Be interesting to speak to different writers and say, what's the optimal time of day for you to write? Because I often stay away from the middle of the day because, well, because I also have a day job. But other things are happening. You know, we're responding to email, we're responding to a phone call, we're responding to sort of the systems that we set up in life. You know, maybe it's time to do some, you know, laundry, whatever. That's kind of like I throw laundry and forget it and then do whatever I need to do, you know, with, with my job. But we're in sort of that, you know, that kind of real life situation where we're now living real life and I can't play with my imaginary friends. But I wonder. If we took a poll of people's writing habits, how many do write in the middle of the day? I've definitely never interviewed anyone who writes in the middle of the day or who has shared that they write in the middle of the day. Most people I know, it tends to be morning or night or a combination of the two. A lot of people I've spoken to, they'll write in the morning to kind of get out of the way and get motivated and have their sense of accomplishment before they start work or before the rest of the family gets up or whatever. And then it kind of starts the rest of the day on a good foot. And that's certainly what I've found. I have that sense of accomplishment by like nine o'clock. And, you know, before I started this routine, I wouldn't even be out of bed before nine. Huh. But that's a practice. Oh, yeah. The, the main reason that I do it before nine o'clock is because Ellie has a day job and we do it together so that we can hold each other accountable. So I have to do it based on what time she starts work. So that gets me out of bed as well. <laughs> so you're accountable in terms of the podcast. Yeah, but we do the writing. We do writing sprints together every morning as well. So we'll hop onto Zoom and do a call and set like a half an hour timer, tell each other what scene we're going to work on and then put ourselves on mute and then just get writing. So how important is it to have an accountability buddy or someone in your life who kind of keeps your keeps you honest? I think it makes a massive difference, actually, because it's a motivational tool because you feel like you don't want to let someone you know down. And also knowing that someone else is in a similar boat to you also just makes you feel less alone. Because like you say, writing can be very isolating, but it doesn't actually have to be. You know, when you have those real struggles to work on a particular um, scene or chapter, which I was going through with Hollywood Heartbreak, which is going to be my 17th book, but I still struggled with it. God, (laughs) I really struggled with it. And having those morning calls with Ellie really motivated me to get it over the finish line. And I don't think I could have sent it to beta readers on time if I hadn't done those calls with Ellie leading up to the deadline last week. It's really interesting too. One of my 
best accountability buddies was this executive and she was writing a, a business book. But the first thing she would say would sit down, we'd go to a coffee shop. What are your goals today? My goals. But it works. You know, we are looking for something that's measurable in the end. You know, where, you know, we can keep saying, oh, yeah, I'm working on that book. I'm writing it in my head. You know, but until the words are down on paper or on a screen, you really haven't written your book. I think I'm writing it in my head or I'm always working on my book. True, it seems like a little bit of um, a hedge there. Yeah, if you don't have anything to show for it, then most people aren't going to believe you that you're actually writing a book. They're going to think you're dreaming up fictional scenarios in your head, which most people do anyway. Right. We do that naturally. So write it down. Yeah. What would you say then to someone who's looking to build their confidence when it comes to either speaking about things or just in terms of their writing? It just comes down to practice. I, I look at things that I wrote five years ago that I thought at the time, brilliant. And I look at it now, I'm like, oh my God, so sad. Um, you know, part of that is self-criticism. Part of it is I really did get better because I kept doing it. And we minimize the the effectiveness of having a practice, regardless of what it is. It's, you know, how do I get to, you know, uh, the Met or Symphony Hall? Practice. So much of it is practice that thing. Like if you have a hard time speaking to people, get a friend. Hey, I, I need to talk to so-and-so about this. It's really eating at me. This is what I'm thinking of saying. And often they'll go, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You don't really want to say it that way. So I always look for the diplomatic friend. And I also look for the person who's not completely judgmental. They have a sense of judgment, but they're going to say, no, 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 no. It's good because some things are necessary. The person who doesn't like to confront at all is not a good person to ask because they're, they're reticent to ask. We worry about how things are going to be perceived instead of putting that energy into how am I going to give this message and how are we going to both walk away from this feeling better or at least knowing that we have something something to think about. We didn't explode a relationship. We always want to keep that relationship alive unless it's a relationship we feel can go. If there's absolutely nothing we can do, and there are very few cases I feel are hopeless, whether you're writing or Speaking, I've seen very fair writers publish a book because there's a part of it. They, they developed confidence and even a little bit of a swagger because they had actual physical proof that they were doing it. So the more that we have proof that we're doing it, oh, I was able to have that conversation with my friend. I'm, I'm making a few adjustments, which is what happens in writing too. I'm going to make those adjustments and you know, I'm going to revisit it. Maybe I'll revise it again. And come up with some, you know, I'm going to put it aside. I think we don't, in, in speaking and writing, we don't know when to put it aside. And I don't mean walk out of the room. When do we say, you know what, I feel like this is a circular discussion. We're really not making any headway because that happens too. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. We're repeating the same things, getting frustrated with the other person. Hey, why don't we come back to this in a few minutes when both of us have cooled off? And I think it's the same thing with writing. I'm I'm stuck. You know, you can call it writer's block. You can call it like self-flagellation. Like, oh, it's all terrible today. It's like, let it be terrible. Come back, take a walk, you know, get some fresh air. Five minutes. Sometimes it's just a couple minutes. Just reset your brain. And I think it's that pushing, pushing, pushing and not allowing things to happen. Often all we need to do 
to manifest the conversation, to manifest the script that we want to. And it's, yeah, sometimes a break can make a massive difference, even if it's only like five minutes to peg the washing out or something. That can be all you need to come back to your computer and see something with a completely fresh perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Just refresh, refresh, refresh. I mean, we do it with our electronics. Let's do it with ourselves. One thing I have actually found that really helps me is exercising. I don't like exercising, but it does help me just slow my brain down so that then the rest of the day I can think more clearly. Absolutely right. Any movement, you know, I I think they've done studies with both running and walking. And while you're in that flow of movement, it really does connect like everything. It's it's not just, oh, I, you know, worked it out of my body. You're actually helping your mind as well. And you're you're oxygenating your mind too. Yeah. It builds certain parts of the brain so that they can function better. I can't remember which, and it helps to reinforce certain areas. I always forget the technical terms when I've read stuff. I just remember, oh, it makes my brain stronger. I should probably do that then. That's as much as my brain actually remembers, ironically. (laughs) Right. But but we also don't give ourselves a chance sometimes to think about how we're feeling about things as well. And we're trying to figure it out as if it's some, I I think there are no answers. You know, truly, there, there really aren't any definitive answers. There are facts. But I think in terms of dealing with human beings, there's no one real answer. We all have a different answer to it. And and that can change either because we've gotten older or we have a different experience. We're constantly replacing our experiences and revising whatever it is that we believe or how we live our lives. And, And allowing that to happen, allowing it to be, you know, there are times people are writing and they're writing an entire book or they're writing a speech and midway through it, they think, no, this isn't what I want to say. And what they do is they say, stay stuck in that saying, well, I, I said I was going to do this. I've put all this time into it. I'm going to finish it. And sometimes there's no utility in finishing that if it's not what you want to write or what you want to say. It's going to come off as forced and deliberate, and there's not going to be any soul to it. And it's also giving permission to go another way. You know, we can change our minds and we don't always allow that to happen. So even in those difficult conversations, midway through it, we can think, oh, wait a minute, they had a point. I just listened to them, which is also, I think, a great thing to develop no matter what you're doing. It's listen to things. And that's how we gather information. That's how we test our own sense of reality in, and challenge our own opinions. I think it's as much challenging your opinions about things, challenge your opinion about yourself and your capabilities. Definitely. All those things are super important, I think, for building our mindset and building our resilience and just feeling more confident in who we are. Yes, absolutely. One question we ask all our interviewees then is what one book changed your life? I saw that question and There are so many books. I will tell you, I did not speak in public until I was 11 years old, and it didn't really like scratch my brain until a couple of years ago. And I thought, oh my gosh, like one of the things I do, I talk for a living, and it was very difficult not to. So I'm going to preface it by sometimes there's a person in your life that kind of opens things up. And I think all of these kind of colluded, they they are collided at the same time. But I would say when I was about 11 or 12, 
there were two books, and I'm not uh, basically a nonfiction or a biography reader. I really love fiction, but there were actually two books in tandem because they were so close together. It's hard to weed out which one was the, the one, but one was the diary of Anne Frank. Because at the time I was 12 and I'm thinking, here is somebody who's my age, who is living in these extraordinary circumstances and being an adolescent. And at the same time, having this courage and insight in this worldview that all this terrible stuff is going on around her. And she still says, but I think people are basically good. And that was as much as you can be inspired when you're 11 or 12. The other was the biography about Helen Keller called The Story of My Life. And I thought, here's a woman, and in retrospect, as an adult, I really appreciate, here's a woman who was without sight, without hearing, and yet she had a voice and she saw things. And again, I think that there are people who overcome incredible adversity to live lives of grace, whether it was a very long life like Helen Keller or a very brief life like Anna Frank. There's this... um, I, th- I think there's a zest for life. And I felt that, um, you know, in my, you know, 12 year old self, really life affirming and really encouraging. And the fact that they wrote these things down about themselves, I think gave me the bug to start to write down things about myself and the people around me. That's really lovely. I have to admit, I haven't read the diary of Anne Frank. It's like one of those things that's on my list. And I'm like, can I emotionally handle this book? That's what's holding me back. It's, I mean, it's very difficult to read some of these things, but what comes from her is this optimistic spirit. And she has a crush on a boy that they're, you know, hiding, you know, she's in hiding and she's, she's crushing on somebody. And there's something so appealing about that, that energy and that I think she knew what she was dealing with, but, but also her parents were protecting her a little bit from it. So it's this really um, unfiltered view of, of this child because she never knew her diary would be fodder for the public. And I, I wish that more YA writers would read that because a lot of times they don't make their characters as complex as they can be because we all have feelings. When we're younger, we don't have the emotional vocabulary always to express them. But always remember that each age, each stage has an emotional life. And how do you bring that out? And it's really finding the truth. You know, when truthful characters speak, they, they connect to us. Oh, they definitely do. They're my favorite kind of characters to write and to read. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the deeply flawed someone I know, you know, the woman who comes undone. I, I love to start with that person. Where do they go? I love to watch. Where, where are you going to go today? What are you doing today? Like they are so sometimes self-defeating and they do things and they don't even understand the, you know, emotional wake that they leave behind them. And it's, do they ever get to the point where they have just a little bit more insight and even giving a character just a tiny bit, because I don't love to see people totally redeemed, but I like to see them on the road to redemption, to know that they can be redeemed. And those are, I mean, because that's us. Yeah, that's powerful because it's realistic and it's becoming less of a trend, I think, but there used to be a real trend of 
kind of cookie cutter female characters who don't have a lot of depth because writers didn't want to or were afraid to explore these kind of less pleasant emotions, shall we say? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, God forbid you have a sexual character kind of gets away with it. I, I think that's almost an unforgivable sin, whether it's in cinema or television shows or in fiction to have this character be fully sexual, like realize that and be able to not be punished. You know, nobody's telling her to wear uh, a scarlet A. And even if there is some of that blowback, that person can still be able to rise above that, still have a status, a high status in the story. And that's important and hopefully going to keep becoming more and more of a thing, thanks to things like Gone Girl and Fleabag, where the characters are very fleshed out and they don't necessarily do the right thing all the time, but you can kind of understand where they're coming from on some level, even if you don't have exactly the same background as these characters. Where can our listeners go if they want to find out a little bit more about you? Oh, so many places. So my primary is lizsolar.com. It's L-I-Z-S-O-L-A-R.com. And there's all my voice work there. I have a podcast called Embark, where you can find also on that uh, website, along with Apple and Spotify and Amazon and those regular places at Beach House Voiceover for Instagram. Um, I'm on, on LinkedIn as Elizabeth Solar. I'm at Liz Solar Voice on Twitter. Uh, I think it's Elizabeth Solar 5 on Facebook. So all kinds of places. And I curate and contribute to a writer's blog called actsofrevision.com. So yeah, that's me. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really fun chat. Christina, thank you so much and keep cooking. (laughs) Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching on YouTube, give us a subscribe and hit that like button. It really helps other writers to find our videos and lets us know what type of content you want more of, which means we can help you more. And don't forget, you can support us over on Patreon for less than your favorite coffee a month. Joining our growing gang of writers will get you early access to episodes, bonus content, writing sprints, and so much more. Come join us over on patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. See you next time. Keep writing.